Welcome, everybody, to the Too High Podcast. I'm Seth Galina. I am alongside, as always, Mr. Deontay Lee. Deontay, what's going on in San Diego? Uh, not much, man. We're just fighting on down here, little by little, day by day. <laughs> That's all we got. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to. I wanted to start this podcast by, uh, like I said on Twitter, officially announcing the end of our friendship. As <laughs> it's really the the podcast has come full circle, and we don't need to do it anymore. No, like, I, I don't know what's what's what is left for us to talk about on this podcast. We're clearly not friends anymore because you got on the wrong shade of red. You got on that boomer sooner red over there, man. <laughs> I can't relate to any of that. <laughs> I, I spent Saturday night watching Bedlam and just like being like, you know, just in a vague type of way, but just looking at Oklahoma's offense and right. being like, oh, wow, yeah, LSU doesn't do that. That would be great uh-huh. that they do that. Oh, and they could do that. And you put Max Johnson in this type of offense and you bring you bring Ben Bow and you're like, oh, that, now the offensive line is going to be better. And like, mm-hmm. I, that's all I was thinking about Saturday. And I didn't even want to like, I didn't even want to be like, even though there were just reports about the LSU Lincoln Riley thing, I, I didn't even want to like, really be like i'm gonna i'm gonna wait till i see it official i'm not gonna get ahead of myself and then the game came on and i was like oh this this offense would be great at lsu yeah and then what happened <laughs> well, honestly, Riley, okay, so yeah so what let me ask you as an lsu fan what hurt more was it the post-game comments or just the news the following day i thought the post-game comments yeah were worse for lsu fans than the news um just because it had it had not been acknowledged basically by Riley or anybody Oklahoma related. So like all the reports that we got about how blindsided LSU was, like I can believe that because it seemed pretty clear that they all thought or felt like for whatever reason, that's where things might trend, even if there was no guarantee. Yeah, it was it was weird because on the one hand, you did hear exactly that, which is that he there was like a verbal agreement and then he was going to come. But on the other hand, you, you also heard that he didn't really want to, apparently didn't really want to coach in the SEC. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, uh, I, you know, I don't know how to square away the two things. But with that said, so first of all, yes, the, the, him saying it Saturday night, um, like I'm not coming to LSU was like, oh, God damn it again. Right, and then and then when it happened to when he goes to USC, obviously a year it was like it was a shock. But obviously at that point, I I wasn't thinking he was coming to LSU either way. So as an LSU fan, less of a right. shock. But as a college football fan, a bigger shock. Uh, so let's turn the microphone to you. How do you feel? Um, honestly, and I said this when we were talking about it in the chat. I mean, Lincoln Riley to USC, great news. Like depending on what framing you want to put on it. I don't know. A lot of people have said this. This is basically as home run of a hire as you can make if you're a school in the position that USC was in post uh, Clay Helton. Um, And you can, I think that everybody can close their eyes and pretty clearly visualize what this will look like, you know, in the first two to three years, even as they're building talent and, you know, trying to develop and figure out, um, you know, what they want to do with the program. My biggest thing, um, honestly was like taking my fan off my fan hat off completely and just thinking about it as like a member of sports media whatever the hell that means right um because my <laughs> don't, the thing ever, I don't in, ever call yourself that again, right? <laughs> um but the thing that really kind of blew me away was just the idea that they could keep all of this process quiet basically until the day that the hire was ready to be announced um so just like the positioning of everything using all of these smoke screens you know I wrote about it, you know, in our coaching carousel update, right? Like from Mike Boneside being able to use, you know, his connection with Luke Fickle and, you know, the Midwestern coaches like, you know, um, Matt Campbell and James Franklin 
and Brian Kelly. And you know, and Brian Kelly being able to drum all that up on the USC side, and that gives you the cover, you know, to be able to reach out to a guy like Lincoln Riley, and then obviously Riley's representation being able to use LSU as cover on their end to be a smokescreen while they kind of go through that process. Because I don't believe, even though you know, some of the stories are coming out that all this materialized over like the last 72 hours, which I absolutely don't believe. There's just no way you make, not from Oklahoma to USC, you don't go from a school as high profile as Oklahoma from USC on a whim like that, in my opinion, um, especially given all the other reporting that we had around Riley um, through that time. So that's kind of the thing that I'm like the most blown away by because USC has had a lot of problems with keeping issues in-house um, you know, and obviously they've had a lot of scandals, so they're drawing even more eyeballs to the university, especially the athletics program, because even the stuff of, like the admission scandal had a tie in to to the athletic program as well. Um, so that was really the thing I was most blown away by. But as far as football goes, I mean, like I said, we can all close our eyes and see what this is going to look like. And, you know, short of a disaster that like I legitimately can't even like articulate. I don't see how they're not on at least equal footing with Oregon by the time they're through their first recruiting class at SC. Well, I mean, first of all, if they go out and and flip all the kids that were coming from right. Southern California that were gonna go to Oklahoma to USC, that's a big, huge, <laughs> that's first step. huge, huge and first it, step. It's funny how I don't know a lot of other places where the head coach was actually bigger like as a brand was bigger than the university and it really felt like that at even though we're talking about Oklahoma it really did feel like Lincoln Riley's brand was bigger than 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 the school itself to a certain degree so I'm not even surprised when 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 he leaves and we already have all these decommitments from from all these players uh, that were going to go to Oklahoma and he goes out and he brings in like you know Caleb Williams from like DC right. you know right. what I mean like I, I think there was there was such a uh that that tells me that this could work very well at USC if you can just flip everyone who was going to be a Lincoln Riley guy at Oklahoma, just make them a Lincoln Riley guy at USC. Because I even feel like I'm not even sure if like like Nick Saban supersedes Alabama like that. Now, obviously, no, him being there for 15 years. Go ahead. I, they're probably just. I think that to your point. So well, All I was going to say is that exactly they're married. Yeah. It's not one is not bigger than the other. Alabama is Alabama because of Nick Saban, and Nick Saban is Nick Saban yeah. because of Alabama. Basically, at least you're talking like modern era. Because I don't want anybody from Bama trying to talk to me about you know Paul Bryant or whatever. Um, but to me, you know, and this is again. So your point that you're making about the brand of Lincoln Riley extends beyond what happens in the recruiting area in the football field, right? And it's one of the reasons why. I legitimately am able to take what he puts in his statement at face value where he says that he just wants a different challenge. Um, and I know that there are a lot of upset Oklahoma fans right now that are kind of trying to sort out, you know, how to feel about how this has gone. You know, in, and I know a lot of other college football analysts have made the point that this is the first time they've basically gone through a coaching search, you know, like almost ever, basically, or really like definitely in the modern era, especially not one like this. And the one thing that I want that I was kind of thinking about before we got on the show is, you know, for a guy like Lincoln Riley, who basically only had the Oklahoma job because the last head coach essentially retired to make sure that he did not get hired away by competitors. It's legit. You can have a legitimate conversation that he might not have chosen a job like Oklahoma if you were on the open market. 
especially if he was willing to leave after what he's built at Oklahoma to this point to go to a place that's not at the same profile, even though obviously we know this is one of like the top five to seven, you know, jobs in college football. So to me, like, yeah, I, I do, do we know that do we know, that's what we think. That's I mean, that's, that's, that's what we think. <laughs> many people are saying, <laughs> um, but to me, I do. I do take that at face value a lot. And, you know, for Oklahoma fans, I'm sure this is difficult, you know, and this is part of like you narrativizing your success, which is what we talked about at different points before. Right. Like because they've never gone through this, it's very easy to convince yourself that it can't happen to you. And, you know, one of my favorite things, you know, one of my favorite quotes I ever heard was from Steve Kerr after, you know, Kevin Durant left the Warriors. And he was like, now we're dealing with the real NBA. We have real NBA problems. Right. Like everything's great when it's great but when it's not great you got to play on an even playing field with everybody else and their rivals texas they've gone through stuff like this before you know you're going to the sec or you're going to deal with you know a school like a&m they've gone through stuff like this before lsu obviously have dealt with high profile coaching changes on multiple occasions the university of florida etc cetera, etc cetera. you know outside of ohio state basically ohio state and oklahoma are basically the only two schools that get to be high profile that really haven't gone through these extremely dramatic, you know, kind of swings in their regimes. So, you know, like I understand why it might be a little bit confusing for them now, but hey, this is kind of what everybody else has been going through, especially like in the last 20 to 25 years in college football anyway. So welcome. I, I don't want to sound like a hipster when I say this because it's not, I'm not saying anything. If anyone watches college football, you know, this is not a crazy statement or, or an underrated statement, but obviously Lincoln Riley bringing Bill Bedenbaugh. I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. Bill Bedenbaugh, the offensive line coach to USC, is a big freaking deal. Because um, he didn't bring everyone. I think he brought online coach. I think he brought Grinch to DC. I think he was director of director of uh, football operations. Football operations. I know their wide receiver. And maybe like a wide receiver coming, coach. And I want to say that's it. And I know that it's not everybody because he has a family member who was on staff with him that is not taking a job at USC from what's Whoa. from what's reported Yikes. from what's reported I, you know I don't know what that says about their relationship but hey you know neither here nor there but he's obviously you know bringing <laughs> bringing bed and ball or beat and ball I don't know how to pronounce it so I apologize if I'm butchering it yeah. um, that is an immediate turn on some of the things that have been a problem for USC for years which is development in the trenches would have been a turn on something that, that that's been a problem for LSU for years right and you know like that was actually one of the things when USC was USC that they were great at they put guys in the NFL you have your Ryan Kelly's you have your Tyron Smith's you know they're able to put guys in the NFL from the offensive line um and, and they've been extremely lacking in the trenches outside of like Elijah Vera Tucker that's basically been like the best offensive lineman that they've had you know in in recent memory that I can think of off the top of my head so not only the schematics of you know a guy who knows how to run counter against any front out of the spread but a guy who can actually develop offensive line play you have your wide receivers coach with you and they've had a great deal of very productive wide receivers both at the pro and the college level so that's very you know encouraging especially for a school like USC who has been kind of churning out pro level wide receivers for the last few years anyways that you know that's kind of a reinforcement of a strength and then obviously having Lincoln Riley and you know running a version of the air raid if you want to call it the air raid that I yeah. think is a different iteration in a way that I'm not going to have as much of a problem with because I think that their approach is going to be a little bit different. Um, so, you it, know, for all those reasons, I'm, I'm excited. It, it, it's definitely funny to call both 
you know, Lincoln Riley era and Graham Harrell and Graham Harrell, who who is the the current um, OC at um, at USC, both air raid because the offense is going to look extremely different. And Very I think good. that's why me and you are like I was super excited for Lincoln Riley, and now you him him actually going to USC um, makes you super excited because LSU and USC were in the same place offensively, kind of. Mm-hmm. And in terms of what they were trying to do schematically and be just super spread. Um, sorry, not super spread because we've used that term to mean something else, but like right. two by two open, three by one open, no no real run game, just throw the ball all over the all over the field. And we just couldn't, neither of us could really understand. There's a play, time and place for that for sure, I think. Kind of. <laughs> but right. uh, I don't think it, I don't think it's the time or place for, at LSU or USC, Correct. so I think Correct. bringing Lincoln Riley in, bringing bringing some heavier bodies on the field, uh, I think it's just going to help uh, everything that they that 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 USC wants to do. I think to get back into into being one of the powers uh, out west, at least. I mean, that's that's the first that's, and that's the step first one, thing right? There. Step one is winning the West Coast again. I will say, you know, we can kind of put a bow on this or move on to other you know coaching things by by let me asking you this. Um, what would you want to do if you're LSU now? You know, Napier is off the board. He's at the University of Florida now. Obviously, the news of Lincoln Riley. So now you guys are competing with Oklahoma, you know, on the coaching market at this point. Not that, you know, we don't know which way they may be leaning. They might just kind of go with one of those Stoops legacy got legacy hires. Um, but what would you like to see based on what's still available, you know, on the market? Well, I just heard Brian Kelly like an hour ago. I, you can't if he's going to bring Marcus Freeman. Like, I'm going to say I mean, no to that. I'm <laughs> like, not the biggest. I'm not the biggest fan of Brian Kelly as a person, dude. But you can't argue the record. Well, you can't. Th- yeah, that that this is always going to be the problem. Is like, I mean, yeah, this is college sports we're talking about here. We're not we're, we're not picking about. people that we actually like here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Besides that stuff with Brian Kelly, uh, I've I've always liked uh, his offenses. And obviously now he he lets the coordinators do you know on offense like Tommy Reese does his own thing, but I've always enjoyed what they do on offense. And then obviously I've I loved um, Marcus Freeman the past couple of years at Cincy and now at Notre Dame. So that to me is a, is is a no brainer. Like obviously if they went and getting like Venables, I'd love it. I don't think I know there's now there's smoke smoke in the water with Venables to Oklahoma. Right. From what I understand about Venables, and I think we we kind of know this, uh, we've seen the same reports of, uh, through the through the years about Venables. Is like he don't want to be a head coach. Yeah. He wants to call. He wants to draw plays. I just want to call. Yeah, he just wants to call yeah. defenses from so, everything that has been out about him. Exactly right. So like, I, I, and look, maybe the allure just just becomes too high if if Oklahoma or LSU comes calling for him. Right. You know, that would be great. And then obviously he'd have to go and find an, an offensive coordinator, but but the defense would be set. Um, you know, it's funny, but like, what about Marcus Freeman himself? I mean, he was supposed to be, the, he was he was almost going to I'll be say, the DC he at basically LSU. basically agreed to terms before Notre Dame came calling. So, so I don't know. I, I mean, I don't I want, I certainly that. don't want Matt Rule to come back, right. even though even though he did really good things at Temple and Baylor, like this past year, uh, the past two years at Carolina, I'm like, eh, not so much. Uh, look, I, if, if Joe Brady wanted to come back, sure, mm-hmm. no problem. But I don't know, I'm, I'm not really, uh, the only guy who would just, I think at this point would just not give me any like, any like joyous feelings would mm-hmm. be, would be Jimbo. Yeah. And I know I'm not at, super anti-Jimbo to tell you the truth. It's just like, 
I want to feel some excitement. I'll say that's just an uninspired after what's it's just uninspired, right? So like, I don't think if you make that hire, you you literally know you're only you got that hire because Woodward just decided he was going to pay an ungodly amount of money, right? Like it's not honestly about the vision of the program. It's let me go get the guy who might be available that I already have a relationship with that I can just throw a boatload of money at. You know, it's not necessarily about LSU identity to me if you make that move. Yeah, and and I and I, I actually really like um, Mike Elko, his defensive coordinator. But yes. again, I don't. You know, the the Jimbo offense is is just a little uninspired. <laughs> the only other guy I'll say is that we haven't brought him up is like Luke Fickle. I mean, I'll take Luke yeah. Fickle any day of the week. Yeah. Um, obviously, what he's done at Cincinnati has been great. Hey, you know what? Underrated is Scott Satterfield at Louisville. I'm, he's not coming to LSU. I know that. I just right. he's he's been an underrated coach and he's been really good. Um, you know, you can even again a guy not coming to LSU. Eli Drinkwitz at Missouri has been really good. That's part of that same that same like App State Mafia type right. thing. Uh, right. Yeah, you know, I, hey Joe Moorhead just um, just became the head coach at Akron. I I know it didn't work out at Mississippi State, but I, I love Joe Moorhead's offense, so that would have been interesting. Yeah, been I mean, interesting. I'm, throw, I'm I'm honestly just throwing out names because at this point I really don't know. Um, and I, I and it's not that I don't I don't care. I obviously care, but I, it's like it, there, there's such a pot of even names for me that I, that it's like anyone you pick out of that hat, I'm I'm probably okay with, unless it's right. like Mike Leach. You know what I mean? Like let's unless it's like Graham Harrell, like. Uh, you know what I mean? Like I, that's pretty much. Or I, I, I'll take any of those guys, dude. I would take Mario Cristobal. I'll tell you the truth. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, what? like, sure, whatever. I mean, you know, uh, you're gonna be fine, right? Like, that's one of those hires where you know you're going to be 100% fine. You know what the ceiling is? Who knows? Um, you know, because we don't really know what the ceiling is at Oregon right now. We mm-hmm. just know what he's built to this point. Um, you know, in his own image, away from the Chip Kelly stuff. But you know, you'll be fine if he's the guy. Um, to me, the only name that you didn't bring Mike up that Ma- I'd hey. be interested in. Okay, oh, I was going to say Mike McDonald, Michigan, <laughs> especially <laughs> after. Uh, yeah, we'll get to, we'll we'll get talk to him to on a second, his performance yeah. on Saturday. The only other name I'm thinking of is actually one that would be kind of tied to Oklahoma as well, and that's Mark Stoops. You know, so I'm interested to see where, you know, his leaning might be. I, he, would I be mean, he, he would be in the same boat as like Drinkwitz and Satisfield where it's like, hey, this is you, – you did a great job going from – five right. wins to eight wins i don't know if we talked about this or i talked about this with somebody else but going from five wins to eight wins but not going from nine wins well i guess lsu doesn't win nine games in a, in, in, anymore but like basically <laughs> going from like nine wins to 11 to wins, 11 right. 11 that wins to yeah, that that might year. be a little bit of a different a, a different type of uh of type of uh person you need there so i'm not really sure Though, though he's done such a great job, it's Kentucky. Kentucky sucks, dude. That's why now they don't. They yes. they want they they're gonna get to ten wins this year. Two years ago, they got to ten wins. Like that's an incredible job. So yeah, and again, it's like I don't. Th- that would be a little uninspired, but I think the program would be in good hands he's, with with a guy like Mark Stoops or Satisfield or or whoever. Right. Dude, I think Manny Diaz. I don't care. Like I like Manny. Like you know what I mean? Like I <laughs> I guess I, I yeah, do think that is kind of where you're where we're at right now, right? Because all the names are. A lot of the bigger names, the names that we spent the last two and a half months on, I mean, they're all basically off the board now. So yeah, uh, and I and I also think you know the the whole thing with with coaching stuff. It's like just because you fail somewhere doesn't mean you're a bad right. coach. There's so many different so many uh, different factors that that play into it. So you know, 
I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm fine with pretty much okay with mostly anyone that they will end up and end up hiring. And so quickly before your thoughts on on Napier to Florida. Um, I like to hire. Um, you know, big identity shift. Obviously, you're going to get a guy who has a reputation of being a strong recruiter. Um, not that he's not a good X and O's guy, because obviously Louisiana's been good. You know, in the Sun Belt, they've been competitive. You know, if not Sun Belt champs, basically for his entire tenure as the head coach. Um, so that's been interesting. You know, I've, I've seen some of the names that are linked. You know, I'll kind of spare everybody on that because you know that's some in the weeds college football stuff. That'll all sort itself out, you know, over the next month or so as all these guys make their hires in the bowl season. But I like the idea of bringing in a guy who is going to be strong in recruiting there. And, you know, he's off of that Saban-esque tree. Like, he's worked with a lot of the best head coaches, you know, and coaching staffs in college football. So he's going to have a nice deep Rolodex of people to call. And that, to me, like, at a place like Florida, it always comes down to what is around the head coach, right? Like, what is a directive that's being set by the head coach? And then what is the support around him to make that happen? And I would trust a guy like Napier who was able to go to, you know, a place like Louisiana and build something out that looked like if he stayed, that they would continue to be, you know, the best, if not, you know, top three in that conference, basically for his entire tenure as head coach. I think that that's a really inspiring thing if you're a University of Florida fan. And I can't, again, this is another thing where could it go wrong? Yes, but I think, Worst case scenario, you're compete. You're still competing to be, you know, you're probably firmly the second best team in your division, and on the right year, you can maybe sneak Georgia, right? Like that's probably the trajectory with Napier right now. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You talk about Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns being like a consistent performer in the Sun Belt, because I think once you start going down to the Group of Five, and this is definitely true in the MAC and the Conference USA, less even in the ACC, AAC, I should say, um, and then the Mountain West, it's like because because no team is recruiting at such a high level that they're always going to stay at one stratosphere, you do get that churn year to year of like, okay, well, it's, and, and the MAC is the best example of that. You don't know who's going to win the MAC on a year to year basis, right? right. Um, and, and the Mountain West does that. And, and like, you know, every year we say there's a new team in the Mountain West that could probably win the Pac-12 that year. And for him to do that and stay, you know, just like App State and just stay consistently really, really good mm-hmm. in the Sun Belt is, is amazing. And I think for me, one of the great things is, man, they built the offensive line there. And that, right. if you can do, obviously, if you can do the same thing in Florida, you're good. You're a pistol outside zone, something we talked about a lot, and they just mash people. They're always some of the highest graded offensive linemen in in the country, in the group of five, uh, according to PFF grades. I know that. Um, so, yeah, I just, um, yeah, that, I, I'm, I think that's a good hire. I would have loved him at LSU. I don't, I, if, the, if they're obviously, if the reports are true that, that they didn't want him because he coached at Louisiana, obviously, you won't want to believe that because, like, come on, like, really? But right. I, I can also see. It. I mean, you. Ha- I mean, you have to honor that because it's a, a real thing that comes up in this sport yes. all the time. Yes, is all the dumb politics that exist <laughs> around yeah. college athletics because of you know people's affiliations with other universities and things like that. There are always these ulterior motives, and it yeah, would really so- suck if LSU ends up on the short end of the stick in this cycle, knowing that they had this guy literally in its backyard. You know that they could have gone and swooped up. The, the funny thing about LSU, with all that said, 
if you look back, okay, <laughs> like hindsight is twenty twenty. But if you look back and said like, hey, it was Les Miles a good coach? Be like, eh. Was Ed Orgeron a good coach? You'd be like, eh. Guess what? Two national championships. Two national championships. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, they might win one with whoever comes yep. there. Because every five years or every four years, the way that, you know, Louisiana pumps out kids um, in terms of their football talent, like, they'll, they'll just luck into something. And then you can take it over the edge with a, with a you know, if they get a, another, you know, like, obviously the transfer thing with Burrow. But um, right. whatever it may be. So, Oh, okay, one thing before, we're going to go talk about Michigan Ohio State in one second. I just was curious about uh, everything I'm reading on Twitter right now is about, like, you know, Lincoln Riley, he doesn't recruit quarterbacks, everyone was on campus, you know, like, um, sorry, uh, I, I think I read saw today that all the transfers and the, right. when he got there, people were already there, et cetera, et cetera. I just want to, I want to ask you, how many colleges do you know that consistently recruit great quarterbacks time and time again. There's a reason I, why it's special when you get one. It don't I, I, matter how you get one. If you get one, you win. It's, it's a very simple equation. Who cares? And like, number one, that's number one. Number two, again, like we have become spoiled, I think particularly with like what schools like Clemson and Alabama have been able to do with their young quarterbacks. Yeah. Guys, the, the typical trajectory is that a college quarterback doesn't get good until his junior year. That's the reason why all these guys seem like they blow up out of nowhere and then become a top five overall pick because they have to develop. Like it, the sport changes. However good you are in, in high school, the sport changes at the next level. And then obviously again at the NFL. And a lot of these guys need time, a lot of time um, and a lot of reps. And you got to remember like, you know, the context of recruiting means that for whatever blue chip you get this year, there's going to be another blue chip with a higher rating at the same position next year that you're also probably going to want in on. And if you recruit the other blue chip, guess what's going to happen to the blue chip in your backyard? He's probably going to leave, right? Or you're not going to be able to keep the blue chip you just recruited because he can't beat out the guy that's already there. Um, so, like, we're in an era of a revolving door at the quarterback position anyways. So who cares if you recruit one? And by the way, I mean, he did have a blue chip guy in this recruiting class. That I've seen play at Los Alamitos, he's a good, he's a really good quarterback. Okay, he could be a starting P five, you know, conference championship level quarterback in my opinion. But if it don't work out, so if he ended up transferring a guy in, you know, like I can speak for USC, like the guy who was playing quarterback at Keenan Slovis wasn't the dude in terms of when he was recruited. JT Daniels was the dude. Gets hurt, Keaton slips in. Hey, we got an offense. Okay, we'll ride this thing out. JT leaves, and it looks fine. He gets hurt. Stetson Bennett, a guy who had to basically beg for a scholarship at Georgia, now looks like he might lead that team to a national championship. And do you think that anybody at Georgia is beating themselves over the head because they didn't do it with Justin Fields or JT Daniels? Not if they win this one. Nobody's going to care about that anymore. So, you know, that's the only thing. That's the only context that matters is do you have the quarterback when you need it? And he's had the quarterback when he's needed it to be able to compete in the playoff. To me, the bigger thing is like, what are you going to do with your defensive backs? What are you going to do, you know, at with the second level of the defense with your linebackers? Can you get edge rushers? Those are the questions that you got to ask. Because that's where Oklahoma came up short. You know, if he's able to do that at USC, then we're talking about, okay, he's made that next step like you talked about. Going from, hey, 10, 11, we can go undefeated, you know, win all our games and make the playoffs to, hey, when we get here, we can look in the eyes of a Georgia, of an Ohio State, of an Alabama, 
of a Clemson at its peak and actually beat those teams and not look like they're still a step behind. And that's the side of the ball that matters. I'm definitely not entertaining any conversation about the guy who has gotten two quarterbacks to win Heisman trophies that he's coached. It's not a real argument and, in my and opinion. And three number one picks. Yeah, like we, we can we can go ahead and put that one to bed. I agree. I agree. All right, let's turn our attention to what happened on the field this weekend, specifically the big game, uh, or the game, I guess it's called, Michigan-Ohio State. We will get to, uh, on the podcast later this week, we will preview the conference championship games, but we just wanted to take some time out and talk about what was the biggest game of the year and and what turned out to be a super entertaining game, and that's Michigan versus Ohio State. Um, So Michigan gets the win, first win since 2011, I believe. Yeah, 2011. So a long time. Yep. I just happened. I happened to be at that game. It was my first ever time in Michigan Stadium. Very, very fun. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, so they go get the win. We had been saying not to toot our own horns here, but like we had been saving, saving, saying for weeks now, uh, especially after Michigan lost to Michigan State, because we were a little disappointed. Because right. we were like, you know what? You know, actually, the team that is really, really good um, that that uh, kind of no one's talking about is Michigan, even though they lost to Michigan State. Obviously, they, they, they allow a comeback of 16 points or whatever, 15 points or whatever at the end. So we were a little we were a little sad that maybe the Michigan-Ohio State game wasn't going to mean anything. Turns out it did mean something, and Michigan right. gets a W. Um, so, yeah, anyways, your thoughts uh, thoughts on the game? We can start, you know, you want to start Michigan offense versus um, Ohio State defense? Yeah, I will say, like, the gap scheme runs out of the formations that they ran, that they used, was probably the most impressive thing to me. I mean, obviously, you can look at the stat line and see that Michigan kind of mashed them up front. But when you see, like, they're able to get to that pin and pull stuff, and they're doing it at, like, the highest degree of difficulty because they're pulling the center in the tackle, you know, on pin and pull stuff, that was really impressive. And then, you know, we know because we had this conversation when Ohio State lost to Oregon, which was like that formation where you have three wide receivers on one side and just a tight end on the other, right? So you hear nub or single width. That's what we're referencing. Um, and they were able to get into that and run like a lot of power and counter out of it and get into like unbalanced looks the same as Oregon did and run that gap scheme stuff. And it was just wearing Ohio State out. They had no answer for it. They were continually able to get to the second level of the defense before, you know, Corum and, and Haskins were, were contacted. And that was the game right there. You know, I I think I saw a stat on Saturday night after the dust had settled on the game that in the second half, they did not see a single third down or they did not have a third down snap. You obviously had two third down plays. One was an offsides and the other was a pass interference, I believe. But they did not actually have to convert a third down by a play call um, in the entire second half. That's how efficient they were on the ground throughout the game, you know, and it was evident pretty early, you know, as, as early as like the middle of the second quarter. It was like, oh, they're going to keep running the ball and they really can't be stopped. Um, was there anything else that kind of stood out to you? Yeah, I think the lack of pass rush um, and this mm-hmm. by Ohio State's, you know, uh, line compared to Michigan's offensive line stood out. I thought Cade McNamara was flawless besides one awful play. There's no else. <laughs> Nothing else to say about that interception, which honestly the game is over at that time. Right. They go score. I mean, they win the game anyways, but like I, I think it would have been even harder for Ohio State to get back in the game, which they ended up doing. You know, they drive down the field. He throws a pick to number 17, the safety. 
there and whatever we don't have to get into it because they end up winning the game and it ended up being a non uh, like an inconsequential play but like yeah um he was excellent just um put the ball where it needed to be through a couple of great nine balls um you know they didn't really test so much um you know the middle of the field i would say but he made the right decisions time and time again mm-hmm. and i felt like you know i i shouldn't really say this but when I looked, watched Ohio State's defense, and, and this had been like a few weeks since I had watched them, it just felt like they were kind of caught, and I get this, they were kind of caught between two worlds of like what they were, what they had been doing for the past two years and how they had to switch it up after the Oregon game. Right. And now they played against a real-ass team. Uh, yeah. This Michigan team is real. Like, there's no doubt about it at this point. Uh, they're real. They hit you in the mouth. And they had trouble. It just felt like they had trouble fitting stuff up. Um, no matter what. So I don't know. That I, maybe you can speak more on that from a defensive uh, aspect, but that's kind of how it felt to me. And again, it's it's not a it, it, it's I, I can't back back this up with anything. It's just kind of how it felt for me. No, I mean that's that's really what the game was. I mean, blocking and tackling, right? And and the ability to fit the run or the inability to fit the run being the difference in the game. And when you're seeing a team like Michigan, and you know that they want to play with big bodies. There is a, you know, there is a draw to try to put more big bodies on the line of scrimmage. Um, but because they're in the, the gap scheme stuff, especially that pin and pull stuff, you can't do that because now you're wasting guys at the line of scrimmage. So now you're going to be asking your linebackers to have to match flow wherever the ball is going, especially when they get into those nub formations, yeah. those unbalanced looks where they're going to be able to create a gap where you typically would not have one to deal with defensively. And that changes the math. And now you've got to ask somebody on the second level to help you re-equate those numbers. And they just weren't able to do it. Um, you know, they really there were a lot of plays, even when they were running like stretch, where you could see the center completely reaching a guy who's in a two-eye. You put a guy in a two-eye, meaning he's on the inside shade of the guard, so that way he can't be reached by the center, right? So the fact that Michigan was able to execute on little things like that, again, created scenarios where they weren't even able to win their one-on-ones because Michigan was getting the jump on them on everything that they were calling in the run game, especially in the second half. You know, I think that, you know, the reputation that that Harbaugh has had, especially in these games, is what, getting the 13 personnel, getting the 12 personnel, you're going to try to play the game in a phone booth um, and win that way. And one of the things that was pretty clear, you know, with Josh Gaddis as the offensive coordinator and his influence on the run game is they were able to do a lot of the things that Harbaugh would like to do out of spread by getting into these particular formations where you're creating these areas to attack on the defense or creating gaps where you want to run the ball anyways. And that, again, that was just, that was the biggest difference for me in the game. And that, and that to me was why, you know, Michigan really wasn't even faced with that many situations that were like obvious passing downs or dangerous passing downs where, you know, the threat of pressure was going to be there. Um, and because they weren't in those situations, to your point, Ohio State's pass rushers, which really probably haven't been affecting games to the degree that we expect, and Ohio State pass rush too, they never really had those situations where they could pin their ears back and really try to, you know, jump the snap or, you know, or, or try to get up the field and affect the quarterback that way. Um, and even even with that, you know, McNamara has been good as a passer. Hasn't been the greatest in the world, but he's been efficient. He's made good decisions. Outside of, you know, the the fourth quarter against Michigan State, he really hasn't had any extended stretches where he was making excuse me questionable decisions with the football so you know they they really had all the ingredients this time around and that's why they ended up winning this game 
Did you feel like you talked about, you know, the issues with like Ohio State linebackers and having to change up how they how they fit the ball because now you're going from a two high system to a one high system. Sorry, a one high system to a two high system. I felt like maybe they were overrunning some stuff and then Haskins, Haskins mostly Haskins, obviously he got the bulk of the carries, was able to cut it back a bit. That I might am I just re- misremembering that? No, there were a lot where the ball bit back and they didn't have yeah. anybody home. And this is actually, you know, funny you bring that up. This is the exact same conversation we had with the Saints when they played the Eagles in the NFL, right? Like if you want to play too high and be in a four down world, your it's linebackers tough. gotta do a lot. Your linebackers have to do a lot, unless you're going to do the old school and Arduzzi thing where you're basically playing cover zero, you know, they're playing a cover zero variant of quarters, basically. Um, and ask, and then you're asking your linebackers to basically just play as downhill as possible, almost like Tampa two, right? Like that's its own idea in terms of fitting the run. And honestly, if they had done more of that, they probably would have been in a better position to win the football game. Uh, at least stopping the run, maybe stopping you know, the run. Obvi- yeah, yeah, that obviously opens up other opportunities for Michigan in the passing game. Um, but they definitely, I mean, if you're going to play even numbers in the box or light in the box, those linebackers have got to be able to make up a lot of ground. And if they can't, your three technique, so your your two defensive tackles, your three technique, and your two eye, those guys have got to win even when they're double team, and that wasn't happening either. So you just saw Michigan getting every angle that they wanted. And, and running backs able to climb up to the second level, you know, or even if the ball is fit well at the point of attack, the ability to cut back. And now you've got your great running back on a corner, you know, and now you're really in trouble if you're Ohio State. Yeah, that's kind of how it felt. And, and you know, those nub sets, the way that I saw them play it was, you know, we, like you said, we talked about it last week with the, the Saints. The Saints played it in a, in a too high type of world with a corner pretty low. And they were playing with a corner high and the safety high, which is right. it's so that's you're 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 alleviating uh, your box a lot when you right. do that. So that was that was tough. And, and look, I, Michigan was the better team. They had the better players up front. Period. I, I don't know how else to say it. They were better than them up front. Yeah, and flat that out. was flat out. Uh, so let's let's um, flip it over to Ohio State's offense against Michigan's defense. And uh, so throughout the game, so this is what we had talked about. We've talked about this for like a year on this podcast, talking about Ohio State's offense and what they want to do to you and how they want to take as many free access throws to outside wide receivers as they mm-hmm. possibly can, whether it's a six yard out, whether it's a 12 yard out uh, or a hook, whatever, at intermediate depth. They want that all the time and they'll take it all the time because the teams they play against for the most part are so afraid of pressing yes. their um, wide receivers because they basically, no matter who they play, I mean, even when we start talking about Michigan, uh, playing Michigan, playing uh, Penn State, playing Clemson in the playoffs, playing whoever, Alabama, for the most part, they always feel they have um, an advantage at receiver versus corner, your corners. So, uh, or, or I'm sorry, defensively, you feel like you're at a disadvantage. So you play right. your corners off. You don't want to get beat deep. You don't want to deal with, you don't want to press. And then they, they have too many moves off the line of scrimmage and you're cooked down the field. So teams, and, and, and they take it. And they take it, and they take it, and they take it all day. And so my thing was, all right, if you're Michigan, this is what I said pregame. If you're Michigan, play off because you don't have the players. We've seen a free, we've seen you try and play man to man. It didn't work for four years. It didn't work. 
five years. So playoff, and then stay in zone. Play if you're gonna, you know, play mostly with two high safeties. If you're going to play cover three, then spin late, um, and just play with a, a no cover zone. You know, linebackers get depth right away. Safeties get depth right away. Like don't let anything over your head. Give them the outside. Give them underneath and mm-hmm. tackle. That's not what they did. <laughs> and I love it. Now, you're playing with fire. Yeah, I think I mean, you got some big balls to do to do what, what Mike McDonald but did. Mike McDonald went into the game and said they're going to press the shit out of Ohio State's receivers. So I looked it up um, before we came on here. There were 51 snaps in that football game where a Michigan player pressed at least one of the outside wide receivers in that football game. Ohio State, in the three years that we have data, like press data, only Clemson at 46 was is close to them. It's close to that number. Right. So, like, no, but like I said, nobody wants to press those outside when they any outside receiver on Ohio State. Michigan did it. They allowed some plays down the field, but they didn't get scared. Yes. You know, uh, uh, there's a couple plays game. down the sideline. Exactly. They played a long game. I loved it. And it wasn't that they played cover one with it. Um, they did play, they actually did play a lot of cover one, um, press cover one, but they played a lot of press quarters, you know, mm-hmm. two safeties deep, you know, call it bracket, call it press quarters, whatever you want to call it, um, and keep pressing those outside players. And Ohio State didn't have those plays that they want right away. And guess what happens when you, when you don't have those plays you want right away and you're playing against David Ojabo and Aiden Hutchinson? Got to hold the ball, and now you're really in trouble. Those guys get you after problems. You. Yeah. So, yeah, that was for me, that was super surprising and i remember thinking during the game i was like you know it just hits you uh you know you're watching the game watching the game you're just I'm, i was like in the moment it, super excited it was such, such a fun game uh, and then all of a sudden i'm in the third quarter i was like wait a minute i haven't seen one speed out thrown this whole game mm-hmm. and then i was then then you go back and watch the film and you're like oh my god this is crazy so anyways that was those are my thoughts about about ohio state's um uh, Ohio State's offense and the way Michigan was able to defend them, and the thing is, they still scored. Like they you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not going to shut out Ohio State. Right. Um, but this was just a, a tremendous game plan by uh, Mike McDonald. Well, what you know, the the next layer of what you're describing, what that also means is, and this is something that I'm not surprised that Cle- that Clemson was also right there in the same number of press looks. What does that allow you to do when you're willing to trust your corners like that? It really lets you flood the middle of field areas, like those intermediate throws in the middle of the field. And that's what that's the kind of bind that Ohio State likes to create for defenses, right? It's we'll take these 10 to 12 yard speed outs, even if it's all the way to the field, every time you give it to us, and the second you start walking up and changing your coverage shell and opening up those intermediate areas to attack with the over routes, you know, with the digs and all of those things, they're as good as anybody you know like i think i said it earlier in the year that they're probably the best deep in breaker route throwing team that i've seen in college football it feels like every time they throw they threw something over the middle of the field this year really for the past couple of years you know with justin fields as well it always felt like the guy was going to be wide open and it was going to be an easy completion for an explosive play but if you're playing those you know bracket quarter looks you know if you're playing you know some cover two looks where you're still showing press yeah, and then kind of falling of off two. and funneling yeah. guys inside. What that's allowing you to do is really sit hard on those in-breaking routes. You know, and obviously, you know, um, their slot receiver, I don't remember 
his entire last name. I know one one half of the, the Smith and Jigba. Smith, there you go, Smith and Jigba. He ate. You know, he was able to eat because you get a lot of that, you know, single coverage and a lot of airspace to work into with those slants and yep. those drags and things like that. So, but again, to Mike McDonald's credit, it is playing the long game, right? It's saying or being able to gamble on the fact that, yeah, they might eat us up on that throw, but that's not really the one they want. And if you understand that that's not the one they actually want and you're sitting on the routes that they do want, you're going to put yourself in a position to succeed. If again, and this is the last layer of it, if you have the pass rush that Michigan and had, they certainly did, set, and they were after them, you know, I think what was it, fifteen pressures total yeah. for for Aiden Hutchinson? I mean, that's it's insane, and he was beating guys every way you can beat somebody in pass rush, inside moves, bull rushes, speed rushes off the edge. He's not the best bender in the world, but he's got a good first step, you know, and his hands are obviously you know at a very high level. Um, his hands and hips, he's just not really a bender type. But he was able to find success basically against anybody he lined up against. Um, and they were really able to use him as a weapon when they wanted to play cover one, right? Because now you're playing yep. tight coverage everywhere and you've got a great edge rusher coming. The the two guys they had on the edge were are usually, those type of skill players, those type of edge players in terms of the, the skill, those usually line up on the other, in Columbus. Right, and they and in this game for the first time in years they lined up in Ann Arbor, yeah. and that 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 changed the game. That was that that was the game because it allowed them to do whatever they want, like you said on on the back end, and there was a play where they they rotated to uh, to cover two, like you said they played a bit of cover two as well, and they got I think Huste was in like a, some sort of stack with um, I want to say like in Smith and Jigba and and Wilson. And they get a stack release, and they get kind of like a like a kind of post thing by the top guy, and then the second guy comes through on on like a slot fade type of right. seam nine type thing, and he gets open because this because you know that you know you're putting two two guys on the safety to that half field, and the safety chose the first one that he saw, right, and the second one's going to be open. See Alabama do this all the time and kill teams. Um, no time for Stroud. Right, because that's think, something I think, that I think you just forced. I think you I think he just forced it down to the um, to like the swing route to that side, and then they tackle it. Right, and it's like, all right, that's that's sometimes that's football, and yep. the team that won the trenches won the game. Period. I mean, yeah, having having dominant defensive linemen does a great job of taking great offensive play calls and making them bad play calls because you just don't have the time you need to get the stuff off, and that's what you know they were very successful with that. And again, I mean. Not everybody could do this. If Purdue showed up, you know, at Ohio State and tried to play a bunch of press quarters and bracket receivers, they're in big, big trouble. All You have to have a very particular kind of defense in order to do this. And honestly, the way that they looked on Saturday, we might have to talk about what they're going to look like in the playoff. Because I don't, you know, I think that they're going to be able to sit on a lot of the Iowa stuff as well. You know, it's just going to come down to whether or not they can stop the run which is something that I think that Michigan has been good at, regardless of who is, who's been the defensive coordinator. So that's going to be a really interesting matchup that I know we'll get into on Thursday. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, the, the spread in that Iowa game was like 10 and a half, which, oh boy, that's yeah. a big-ass spread for a game that's like for the total was like 40 or something. Game, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I think and I, I, look, Michigan's a good t- football team. That's, yeah. I think we, I think at this point we can just say it. We can, yeah, uh, we can say a it. Really, they're a really, really football team. They're a real football team. 
I think you're 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 looking at you know I, if Iowa, who has a pretty good defensive line, if they punch him in the mouth a little bit and make and make uh, McNamara throw some tight windows, especially with you know the corners they got out there at yeah. Iowa. I mean, that could be interesting. Definitely interested to see yeah. what happens there because again, we didn't see this in the Ohio State game because the offensive line was so dominant. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if Iowa or Ohio State has a better defensive line, but Iowa definitely has a good one at least. Uh, mm-hmm. So that'll be interesting to see. All right, that was a hashtag CFB talk uh, presented by Manscaped. Uh, Manscaped just launched a new. Okay, take a breath here. I'm gonna do this right. <laughs> Manscaped just launched new products, including their all-new ultra-premium body wash and two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. It's time to give yourself or someone who needs it the gift of beautiful skin, beautiful hair, and beautiful genitalia this holiday season. Go to manscaped.com and use promo code PFF for 20% off and free shipping. Inside the Performance Package 4.0, you'll find the signature Lawnmower 4.0. This, this electric trimmer has propriety advanced skin safe technology to reduce cuts on your body. It's also waterproof so you can use it in the shower and there's a nice LED light that's attached to it. Uh, they also launched their new two-in-one shampoo and conditioner which I talked about which has key ingredients with benefits that include hydrating, nourishing, conditioning the scalp and strengthening your hair at the same time. Tis the season to load up on Manscaped products so go get yourself or anyone you know the best gift of all the Manscaped performance package 4.0 get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code PFF at manscaped.com that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com all right uh, let's get into the NFL Uh, and like I said we'll we'll be back with some uh, back with some college football talk on the later episode this week we wanted to start with the Colts versus the Bucks this past weekend and what went on there Let's start with Indianapolis's offense. I think there's there was rumblings, uh, you know, this morning on all the on all the, you know the talking head shows and stuff like that. Should the Colts have given Jonathan Taylor the ball more? Uh, your thoughts? Um, I mean, I get. I, the only reason why I don't like that question is because I'm like, you can always just say flatly that the answer is yes and sure because the guy's a talented player, right? But then yeah. it comes down to... But you can say that about anything too, right? Right. Like, you know, because I, I mean, should, can I make the argument that you should get the ball to Michael Pittman more because he's been playing well as a receiver? Like, sure. you can always say that. It's all about what happens situationally. And I, I mean, to me, the complaint can't... We cannot com- continue to complain about what does or does not happen to an offense in a game where they score 31 points. And they're at the 30-yard line with 10 seconds left to tie up a game. Like, I thought offensively they were fine. To me, the biggest thing was just, like, that interception that was thrown on that big, you know, post route coming across the field to Michael Pittman. I think it was either late in the third or early in the fourth. Um, that That's that, the play that, that can't. That was the play. That's the play that can't happen, right? Like, because they were up at that and, point. They were up by, by four, I believe, through that. And then that changes the tenor of the football game. That's Dude, the play they, that has to get taken out. They might win the division if he just eats the ball at that time. They're like he could take a sack, and they're probably they probably have a better win probability. <laughs> like, man, and, and the guy wasn't open. That's the thing that bothers me. Is like I they're trying to do that play that we've talked about a lot, which is you boot the quarterback out, you make it look like you know. So in this case, they they booted him to the right. You make it look like you're just going to flood right, you know, mm-hmm. three-level flood to the right, and then you bang the, the post route back um, from your, like, slot receiver. 
um, and then throw all the way back to the left. So it's like, and that's like the one read, right? There's no, it's it's that right. a check down or run, exactly. right? There's no, it's not, it's a, not progression. a progression or anything yeah. like that. And uh, I always forget the name of the safety. It's Sean Murphy Bunting. Oh, Winfield, of course. Antoine Winfield. Um, he just never, the, he gave so much cushion on the corner as the corner part of the route that when it banged back to the post, he was just like, mom, I'm already here. Right. And then Carson just kept still through it. And, and that was, that was just, uh, just an ill-advised. And then that's Carson. I mean, he, that's Carson, he's playing right? so good, man. And it's, that's the like, thing is like, on, it was man. a good game. Everything else he did was a good, was good for the game and enough to win except for that one. And if there's one thing we know about Carson wins, is that he can find a way to make the one play you literally cannot make in a game full of great decisions. Because outside of that, there really wasn't anything really wrong good, with them. Man. Um, and this is, I think a lot of this is a credit to Frank Reich as well. You know, watching their passing offense, they basically, the only thing they run are like high lows. It's like high lows, a lot of snag, a lot of smash, yep. a lot of spot concepts. So a lot of like so inside out oh stretches, you know, yeah. and you're either running a dig behind it or a corner behind it. And that reason is for a lot of what we're saying about Wentz, right? Like, you have to define the windows for a quarterback like him. Otherwise, he's going to take it upon himself to try to make a tight window throw, <laughs> you know? And, and that's where you can kind of run into trouble. So they've done a really good job, you know, with this offensive staff of being able to protect Wentz from some of his worst habits. It's he, just like when had... you get into those designer plays, which, again, good play call. You run flood off of boot all the time. I understand saying, hey, we're going to take this shot here. But to your point, I mean, it's a one-read thing. If it's not there, put it in the eighth row, dude. There, there are other football plays that are coming, and they have been successful on offense, so there's really no need to press for that particular throw. And they had done a pretty good job keeping them clean throughout the day as well, you know, for for as well as we know Tampa Bay to be in terms of a pass rushing team. Uh, in terms of the Jonathan Taylor aspect, you know, Tampa is scary up front. You know, with all the bodies they can put it there, and the fact that they they have no problem playing a bare front. Right. The Colts until the last drive, until the last drive of the game, um, and they actually had success on that last drive. But until the last drive of the game, they had run one running play against the Bears. They had thrown it every other time they had seen it, mostly off play action. That's and so like smart I get idea, why, right? I get why Jonathan Taylor is not part of that that game plan, um, especially when and it worked. Because because he was very because um, uh, Wentz was very good and they got defined spaces like you talk about to throw the football. Tampa Bay's defense was very, I don't know, it was basic, I guess. Off corners, one safety in the middle of the field deep, a lot right. of space. You know, we talk about this a lot about like you, you know when you're playing, especially cover three you have to overlap zones, right? There's like these half zones between um, linebacker level and safety level um, that need to be dealt with in certain, with certain techniques and certain, in certain scheme schematic ways. And I didn't feel like they did that and they opened up a lot of space in, in those areas um, for, for Carson Wentz to throw into the ball to and he was accurate and he made a ton of good plays. So, you know, I thought it was a really good game plan like that. Like, yeah, again, like you said, you can only just cook, fall back and say, "Well, if they if they would have you know run the ball with Jonathan Taylor, then then what then whatever." But who knows? Had they run the ball into these um, I mean, loaded you boxes, don't. you don't. Yes, it's the, a don't box know. does not get more loaded than the Bears. Yeah, 
and like i said they had some success on the very very final drive um running um into that into the bear stuff but um i think that was a great game plan for them to not do it and we saw it with the cowboys too like no one's saying uh you know in, in week one no one was saying oh they should have ran zeke more the cowboys uh, people were like wow good job they they didn't want to run the football into that teeth t- t- that defense and they give the ball to dak prescott and they scored 30 points in that game or whatever well the went scored you know the Colts scored 30 points in this game and right. i thought it was i thought it was a really good game plan i thought they you know frank reich is, is really the carson wentz whisperer clearly um and they do a really good job with their rpos getting some getting some play out of them um running that like stick flat rpo like every play like fucking everybody runs now jesus christ yeah uh this leads me to um a point that i make all the time now which is that everybody runs the same fucking plays in the nfl like i the amount of times that i've seen that orbit motion that into a bubble to the tri- that becomes a trip side inside zone handoff uh, rpo that's all that's all anybody runs it's like everyone is running the is same the biggest giveaway on earth Oh, like no one runs out, literally else outside of San Francisco, which we'll get to. There is no other team that puts a wide receiver in the backfield and then flares him out to the two receiver side <laughs> to run anything yeah. other than inside zone with the bubble. That's all it is. It's just inside zone bubble. You could find you could find twenty five plays a week of like of all teams running that. Like uh, it's crazy how many how often you see that and. Yeah, I mean, everyone just runs. That's just one example. Uh, uh, running back jet wheel, um, mm-hmm. you know, four verts jet wheel thing. Running back, halfback seam. Everyone yep. runs that now. Uh, obviously, everyone runs, runs like, yeah, anyways. So, but anyways, getting back to the Colts, I thought it was a really good game plan. I wasn't super into the the Bucks um, game plan defensively, just kind of sit back there. But but again, this is kind of the issues you have when you want to play Bears. Like you you don't always have the ability if you're going to play with five defensive linemen to layer your zone defense behind mm-hmm. it, right? Um, there's one thing I want to talk about uh, as it relates back to my flag football career, of course. Um, but so, so something that, that the Bucks did that I do think is a good defense, but also has trouble if you can't get to the passer, and they had trouble with that, is what they would do is show this like one high safety, corners off, and they would roll to a cover two from that look. So the safety in the middle of the field rolls to the half field, and the backside corner sprints almost to where the half field safety would be um, on the opposite side and the flat defender um to the uh, to the the side where the corner is leaving he kind of he sprints out there gets to the flat and then the corner to the side where the safety is coming to he can he can play a little harder and play like a hard cover two corner and they can disguise it and i just want to say that i do that a lot in flag so that's all (laughs) when i call defenses i do that a lot because i do think it's a good if you can get pressure, I think that's that's just a, it's such a simple install for a defense. It, it you know it takes no time, especially to install if you're a single thing. high team, right? If you're a single high team and you run or run cover two, you probably don't want to show two high safeties, right? Because anybody with a pair of eyes can say, "Hmm, there's another guy on the hash that was not there on any other play, <laughs> probably doing something different here." So, but it is a really good play, and you know, to that point, like we were talking about with Michigan, right? Like, if you're a cover three team in terms of like that overlapping zone, what does that mean? You're giving up. A lot of stuff underneath which is why you see you know all these check downs you know tight end targets and running back targets and slot targets go through the roof against cover three if you're playing cover two now you're trapping those throws you know you're not really so concerned about overlapping things down the field 
you're yep. really talking about like flooding those underneath areas. So it is a really good idea. And Tampa Bay has been good at that basically yep. for as long as, as Bulls has been there. So, But you have trouble when you can't get to the passer like you did Correct. In this game. And now you got and the seams wide, wide open. Now you just got so much space, especially if the quarterback looks the opposite way and he looks to where the rotation against the rotation. That's that's um, a bit of a problem. All right. Uh, oh yeah. So let's let's switch over um, to Brady and the Bucks offense that gets the, that ends up getting the job done. You know, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Washington. You know, they played Washington. Washington played zone. Mm-hmm. They sat back. Mm-hmm. They had a no cover zone. Right. Brady checked it down, checked it down, checked it down, and they tackled. And they and they couldn't move the football. Then Monday night happens. What do the Giants do? They rush three sometimes. You know, it's like a college football defense plays zone behind it, and you give Brady too much time, and he checked the ball down, and people made plays for him. Checked the right. ball down, people made plays for him. This, I feel like it was a lot of the same thing in this game, um, where you, we know what the Colts are defensively. They're going to sit back in zone, and they're going to try and try and like squeeze windows like that. And it felt like, A, they were able to run the ball uh, pretty well with Leonard yes. Fournette against a too high structure. I mean, they were really and, productive on the ground, especially like in the second half when they were trying to control the flow of the game. Yeah. And then, you know, when you get too high, your slot's got to be players. And I'll tell you what, mm-hmm. this tight end they got, Rob Gronkowski, if he's, if he's alive again, <laughs> that is so fucking scary. It, he is so good in the seams. We know it. Uh, he's making plays out there again. He can't run. The dude cannot run. That's what. That's probably but, the funniest thing to me. But he gets watching there. that guy move and still somehow is a productive professional football player. It is unbelievable how productive he is, considering he's he's dead. I mean, he's the guy's, the guy's basically dead. <laughs> the zombie like, man. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Imagine. Imagine if Jason Witten was just running up the seam every time while he was playing for the Raiders, right? And still being targeted up the seam. Yeah. There's something I'm like, are we sure we need to be throwing this guy the football? I feel like he might be better off changing to 78 instead of being 87 with the way he moves sometimes. But he's still he's just so good in those intermediate so areas. Good. And obviously he Catch radius Brady, is unbelievable. I'll have to say their I mean, their chemistry and understanding how to get yep. that guy targets in the seam or, you know, behind linebackers, it's been top level for basically what since 2014 you know 2013 so like that is like one of the again you can close your eyes and see it oh play action gronk up the seam first down doesn't doesn't matter what you're doing defensively uh and then that just plays into the point that i made two weeks ago on the podcast which is like hey you know washington did it they held them down it's not and, and yeah, you want to say, hey, we're just going to take away everything deep and, and make them check the ball down and, and blah, blah, blah. And it honestly, it, it rarely works. And it did not work for the Giants and it didn't really work for the Colts. So, um, all right, that was uh, our weekly uh, segment called Frank Reich is a Quarterback Whisperer presented by PFF. Uh, right now, you can get 40% off any PFF subscription with uh, promo code Cyber40. Uh, it is Cyber Monday today, though. I guess it's not going to be Cyber Monday anymore when you're listening to this. Uh, grades and data are live for every single player who logged a snap last week. Go check out the highest graded players from week 13 uh, or week 12. Well, what can you get with a PFF subscription? Uh, all of PFF's locked article content, PFF's NFL and college football betting dashboards, our grade power projections, cover probabilities, and betting values, 0 to 100 grades. 
sorry, I got a text. Uh, zero to 100 grades of every single player, including the top rookies in every team. Player prop tool, which shows positive and negative value for every NFL prop and more. Support the pod and use promo code CYBER40 for 40% off any sub. The text that I got is that uh, Brian Kelly to LSU is trending downwards. Uh, so <laughs> good unfortunately news. only good news on the podcast right that's great <laughs> all right uh okay let's get into the last two uh teams that we want to talk about um you pick uh, your choice here you want to go Bengals you want to go 49ers uh let's go for let's go actually let's go Bengals let's close with the Niners all right uh the Bengals mashed the fuck out of the Steelers <laughs> there you go that's my take on the game have fun yes um, the one thing I will say, and the only real thing I have to say, you know, I watched it kind of interested to see where Burrow is at since things have kind of evened out over the last month or so. And the one thing I will say, I mean, the offense is just not as vertical as it was, and I could have told you that that was coming, and it's just because there aren't as many opportunities to take those deep vertical shots. Teams are now playing them. Now, he's still got, obviously, that really incredible catch by T. Higgins yeah, over I mean, the top that's just... in, in the back of the end zone, but that's a wide receiver just making a freak yeah. athlete play. Because that um, should have been know. a back shoulder, and he said, Fuck "Exactly, it. whatever." Yeah, I'll just put I'll put <laughs> it right in front of the DB and just ask my wide receiver to go over the top of the guy. Um, so that was really the big thing that stuck out to me. Um, but I do think the fact that they're able to find a rhythm in the run game—that was the thing that oh I always God. thought. Like, okay, you want to talk pathways to success with Burrow here, while you have Joe Mixon and you have Zach Taylor as a head coach. That's the path, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be the Jared Goff offense for the Rams. But, you know, you want the guy in empty? Well, you want what you really want for Burrow, right, are easy coverage shells to identify, right? Because you want him to be able to play matchup ball because they have great wide receivers between Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, and then you have C.J. Uzuma, you know, as a tight end as well. And you have an elite pass catching back in the backfield as well, right? Like they have, you know, one of the best combinations of wide receivers, tight ends, and running backs in the passing game in the league. So you just want to find obvious coverage shells. And the best way to do it, is to make sure that teams have to honor the fact that your running back will touch the football. And they just hadn't done that enough. They were yep. obviously successful while they were hot early in the year. But again, now the teams, I think, are starting to get a lot more depth in their zone drops. That was the one big thing that stood out to me with Pittsburgh, and it didn't work for them. Um, but, you know, I think you're going to see more and more of that as teams either playing too high or playing single high and getting a ton of depth to keep their free safety over the top of a guy like Chase or Higgins when they're outside. And for that reason, you got to be able hey, to use a guy like Mixon to be able to eat them up underneath. Burrow threw a pick to the safety. Mm-hmm. Stay high. He wanted to throw the nine ball down the sideline. Yep. And, and poor he threw throw. the interception. I mean, poor throw. Ball poor, decision. Ever, ever. Yeah, poor decision. Poor decision. Under pressure, just eat it or, or take the check down. Um, poor decision. Because the thing is, he never even looks off the safety. Like he, exactly. He's, it, it's catch a snap. Let me look at this. Shoulders nine are turned. Let me throw the I'm nine looking around. high. Yeah. I, I can yeah. Tell him, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't love that. Um, yeah, and I think this is the way to pass success. I mean, it felt like they played with a ton of 13 personnel, just just like getting single back, um, three tight ends, two tight ends, and they just mauled the interior. And that, that man, if, if this is how good the interior is um, going forward, they're going to have some success running the football. And like you said, that's going to that's gonna open up a lot more um, in, in terms of how you can play against them, right? Like, are you going to – can you play – you want to play Burrow with two high safeties and take away his willingness to throw the nines down the sideline. You know that's the thing. That's the thing I've, I've always enjoyed about Burrow was I, I understand that he he has an average arm or even a below average arm. He ain't afraid to throw these one on ones. He trusts his receivers. Right. He always has, right? So um, 
and 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 he puts the ball in good enough spots where the receivers can go make plays. Obviously, we know what Jamar Chase has done with Burrow as his quarterback over the past three years. So, if you're going to play too high to, to take those type of throws away, well, hand the fucking football off. And they haven't been good at that. This was a game where they were great at that. I mean, they were great at that. Um, Mixon wasn't getting touched until five yards past the line of scrimmage. So that I do think that bodes extremely well going forward if they can play this type of offense now again you have the same issues that i've always had with when i you know when i put the tape on you always have with them they don't really deceive you right right? they just kind of line up and play ball now if you can line up and play ball and mash the guys on the interior yeah you're gonna gonna, you're gonna look pretty good you're gonna score 40 points or whatever um but but um you can have problems uh if you're not winning um those one-on-ones on the inside so that would be my i think that that'd be my only concern going forward and and it's the same concern yeah i'll say i mean that that's basically it's all rooted in the same thing right like offenses have to go over you know, any great offense is going to have to have a metamorphosis around this time of year, right? Because now everybody's got film and you start making adjustments and you've got to change, maybe not your identity, but you got to change the way that you get to the things that are central, you know, in your identity. And the fact that they're able to put on tape now that, hey, we're not only are we capable, but we're comfortable giving the ball to our running back and really mashing you between the tackles. You know, that's probably the best that that offensive line has looked, you know, maybe all season in the run game. Two years, you know, fuck. I, mean, I was just saying maybe in multiple years. I mean, damn near since, like, Whitworth was there, right? Um, so that, to me, is probably the most encouraging thing. You know, we'll see how the AFC picture, you know, sorts itself out because a lot of these teams, especially near the top, are all clumped together. Um, so, you know, things will kind of sort themselves out, and that division has obviously been extremely competitive this year. I guess it's always competitive. So I'm interested to see, you know, if this is something that they can lean on and maybe try to find out if they can get hot one more time and try to sneak, you know, sneak their way into the wild card here. All right. That was our weekly segment uh, called Joe Burrow is the best quarterback in the league. I don't care what anyone thinks. Presented by Western and Southern, whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFS very own Chris for Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al Michaels on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? Now you can ask about either or both. And every football or financial question you ask earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. Check out the Chris Pollen... Jeez... Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions questions at westernsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that is westernsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. All right, uh, finish this off with uh, 49ers offense. So biggest thing to me, they've obviously been moving the ball much better in like the past three weeks. Um, you know, the outside zone stuff is the outside zone stuff. Like they're kind of back in their bag, even though it wasn't like super explosive this past week, they were able to run, you know, for 88 yards on 19 carries and two touchdowns on outside zone runs. But to me, the thing that's kind of cool that I think Shanahan is realizing now is exactly what kind of weapon Debo Samuel is. And obviously from the time he was drafted, everybody had been talking about this, right? And we've seen it dabbled with, oh, that can be your jet sweep guy. That can be, you know, a guy that you can hide in the backfield. You can manufacture touches for this guy on bubble screens and end around. And you saw pieces of that, especially in that Super Bowl run. And now you're really seeing like the next evolution where it's like, oh, no, he can actually be like a second running back on the football field. 
So you see them, and I think eventually teams will scout them out that every time San Francisco has stacked receivers and Debo Samuel's in the backfield, they're giving the ball to him running outside zone to the strong side. Eventually teams will realize that that's what that look is, and they'll have to grow on their um, on their package for him in that way. But right now it's been really good, and because of that they're getting back into situations where a quarterback like Jimmy Garoppolo can be decent which is opening up the field wide because of the threat of outside zone. I mean, they're running dagger and throwing the ball to Ayuk, and he's got, you know, nobody within 10 to 15 yards. Wild, wild. Like, I haven't seen – we haven't seen that from this offense since 2018, basically. So, you know, or 2019. So, to me, that's been, you know, the reason behind the surge. I think that they have found, again, a way to manufacture enough threat of a run game to be able to help Jimmy. And sometimes watching him is a little weird, right? Because he's not necessarily a good touch thrower, which is why they have to be so good in the run game to open this stuff up wide where you can just put the ball on the wide receiver's chest. Even in the game against the Rams, right? Like they were great on third down, but you go back and watch some of the quality of those throws. And a lot of that is just like Kittle and Samuel making throws, you know, making catches outside of their radius in traffic, you know, and things like that. So they've been doing a good job of protecting their quarterback much like we talked about with Indianapolis and Carson Wentz, you know, with their run game. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, we probably say the same thing about Jimmy uh, every week. Yep. They far probably need to create more explosive plays on from his arm. You know what I mean? Like, they can create, like, Shanahan can create explosive plays. That's never gonna, that's not a problem. Um, but um, probably with his own arm, they need to create more, like, like, t- like one-play touchdowns. Right mm-hmm. from his arm, I, I think that would be the only thing. But it was really good, and obviously the issue. And I, I said this um, the other week. Uh, I said it on Twitter today. But like, if your whole offense is fucking high lows, I gotta stop swearing. God damn it! <laughs> if your whole offense is is high lows on the will linebacker, eventually, and that's all you feel like you can do if you're if you're Kyle Shanahan with this quarterback, like he's gonna throw a pick. And he did. Yep. He, I mean, every he's gonna week, go, right? He's going to go safety blind. He's going to go linebacker blind. Every week. And that, that it's tough to deal with, man. That's just a waste. It's a waste of possession. Every once a week, it's a waste of possession. Mm-hmm. So, and like, yeah. And, and, yeah, the last thing I will say on is, like, while they are surging, like, there are times where I watch this offense and I'm like, eh, the clip is still right around the corner. Like, if they're not able to be as productive running outside zone, like, it's going to look exactly how it looked the first seven, eight weeks of the season. So, like, I don't want to fool myself into believing that they've really turned a corner as much as they have, like, found something functional for the time being. It's just functional enough. Did you see Travis Benjamin? This guy is 32 years old. I couldn't believe it. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm like, who is this little 17? And he's blazing down the field. Uh Uh-huh. And then I'm like... I'm like, I, I'm like, it's like I, I couldn't even I had no idea and then go on the you know 49ers.com Travis Benjamin and then I even did a thing where in my head I was like okay there must be another Travis Benjamin and then I click and then I you know I go look him up and it's Travis Benjamin 32 <laughs> years old and he is blazing down the field still taking the top off the defense just taking man. tops off like he didn't I don't think he one ball but he just took tops off running wind sprints dude there was one play where they had him I don't know it, you know if it was one of those things where he was just trying to get a look on a run play but this guy sprinted at full speed on like outside zone away from him 
until it's just a safe, like just past the safety. It was hey, man, the funniest put, thing I've ever putting seen. Putting that on tape for the next job you get, man. <laughs> Trying to stay in the NFL. <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe it. I was like, how are you? I'm I'm 33, and um, you can't catch me dead. Um, you know, I'm in my fly football leagues. Like, <laughs> if I know, look, I, I can't. I don't want to out myself too much as a lazy son of a bitch. But <laughs> if if I know. Like if if the court if I'm on the backside of like smash and I know the quarterback is really just gonna work the one side of the field, or it's oh, like you know, some sort of flood, some sort of flood to away from me, dude. And I have like you know uh, Seth, you just have a six yard hook on the backside. It is a three yard. Oh, I'm gonna turn walk. into a Baylor. I'm gonna turn into a Baylor receiver in the Bryles era, man. <laughs> it's me, just it's yeah. Anyways, uh, all right, that's it. We're done. I'll see you Thursday. Peace.